Hello, crime lovers, and welcome to Crime on Tap. I'm Megan, joined by my co-host, Sean. And welcome to our true crime podcast. Join us weekly as we drink our favorite cocktails and discuss gruesome murders, kidnappings, conspiracies, and more. Share the podcast with your friends, family, and heck, your grandma. Leave a review and make sure to follow us on all social media platforms at Crime on Tap Pod. Tune in for free on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts. Whether you're driving to work or doing laundry, Crime on Tap will be sure to fulfill your true crime fix each week. And now, buckle up for this week's episode. Listen and enjoy. All right, welcome back. Oh my god, nope, nope, too low. <laughs> <laughs> You're lucky I didn't have a truly to open. <laughs> oh. oh yeah, I kept that in there. That was the first thing. Was that <laughs> no lead up? Just I, thought, I thought that was really funny. It was. <laughs> Alrighty, you guys, welcome back to another episode of Crime on Tap. My name is Sean, joined by my co-host Megan. <gasps> Megan with the short hair. Yeah, flipping around. Mm-hmm. I'm still wearing a hat because you guys know why. <laughs> it looks better. Does it? Yeah. I feel like it's I starting to butchered. grow a little bit. Well, you know what? The lighting's not the best here, so maybe you're just seeing, you know, just seeing oh. like in low light. Just hat. That's what you just hat until it grows out. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Crime on Tap. We are so excited to be here for another episode, and I'm so excited for this episode, Megan, because I think between the both of us, our fascination with summer camps and like mm-hmm. the whole aesthetic behind summer camp we bonded over it over like the love of summer camps for like years now because mm-hmm. well I, we both I don't know about you necessarily I feel like that's kind of been similar for you that like I went to summer camp like overnight camp there was like dances and all that mm-hmm. stuff but I never it was never what it was in my head like the TV show <laughs> camp, for instance, we bonded over that. Like, yes. oh, so good. Like falling in love and discovering yourself and like all those fun summertime tropes. Yeah. And we still, even though never had that experience, it still hold camp in a high regard of like that <laughs> fantasy of camp, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Right. Well, I always feel like, like your first kiss, like, you know, your first hand job. <laughs> <laughs> Like you say hand holding, you went the other way. But yeah, I never really went to like camp camp. I went to like tennis camp, which was overnight, but it was in like dorms at a college. So it wasn't like oh, very different. So I feel like that's why I was always fascinated with like the camp aesthetic because I never really got that experience. Yeah, I remember when I went to camp, there was a pe- uh, a bedwetter. She went to she went home the first day. <sighs> Honestly, I would just go home too at that point. Yeah, I'd be so embarrassed. Well, and the summer camp I went to when I was like a teenager, they were like, they're very cheap for a reason. They have so many limited showers versus how many kids they have that you can't shower alone. You have to shower with someone else. And wearing a bathing suit, though. And you're not allowed to wash your hair. You have to wash your hair in the sink separately. So literally everyone just went into the pool because it was easier. Yeah. So when I say literally 
everyone smelled, everyone smelled. And then, well, you know, you're, you're trying to get your summer crush to look at you and you smell like fucking <laughs> B.O. and piss. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, even still, like, showering with somebody with, like, a bathing suit on is still weird, you know? Like, somebody especially, you don't really know. Yeah, I was going to say... Especially like if like it's new, you're a new camper and stuff, and it's like, mm-hmm. yeah. So I didn't shower <laughs> for a whole week. Maybe that's why you didn't have the best experience with the boys. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe it's all coming together. <laughs> Be sure to listen to us on all the platforms: Spotify, Apple, and all the other platforms that we don't know about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the you know the ones. The ones. Yeah, the ones. Like we say it every week. The ones. Oh, and you said you wanted to do a special update. All right. So I've been trying to get this out for like two episodes now. But I wanted to do an update on Britney Spears. Because if you guys didn't listen to our past episode, which I feel like our timing was like just a little bit off. Because we did that mm-hmm. episode. And like two weeks later, she comes out and is like, I hate my life. Like I've been lying to all my fans. And I'm like... Are you fucking kidding me? Like, we just did this episode. <laughs> I know. And then now you're going to be telling it? Yeah. That means we we were hashtag free Britney before it was big. So so the recent update on the Britney Spears, free Britney, is that she got to select her own attorney. So the judge finally approved. Well, I don't know if it's finally. I just don't think um, Britney was given the correct advice prior, and she didn't really know what she had the ability to do breaking free from this conservatorship. So finally she's like getting the right information. So now she has her own attorney, which in the past it was being appointed by her father or the other conservators. Right. So it's not going to be an attorney that's going to help her be free. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. They're going to tell her what, you know, very limited information to keep her in the conservatorship. And she's working towards being free. Oh, and also her boyfriend, Sam, was just involved in the fender bender. <laughs> oh, no. So that's why she can't ride in the car with him. Yeah. And she's like, I just want to fucking ride with my boyfriend in the car. But <laughs> yeah, maybe you shouldn't have. <laughs> maybe that's the one thing that was good. So, yeah, that's my only update on Brittany. We'll keep you guys updated as there's more information released. It seems to be happening uh, pretty slowly. Yes, as all as the American justice system seems to go very slowly. Mm-hmm. Okay, anyways, Megan, here on Crime on Tap, we like to have a little drinky, drinky poo-poo. Um, so <laughs> what are you drinking tonight? <laughs> so I'm actually drinking alcohol tonight. I want to join you. <gasps> so this is a pink okay, drink. Okay, what the hell is that? So it oh, is, is it a pinkity drinkity? It's a, what is with your rhyming today? <laughs> drinky poo-poo, drinky poo-poo. It is pink lemonade, Smirnoff vodka, and then mixed oh. with a lemon white claw. So I haven't tried oh it yet. God. So this is my first sip. So I, okay. Ooh, I'm gonna, okay. Um, it's all right. <laughs> oh What's the qualm? The white claw, I feel like, is, you know, that kind of, when you just drink straight up club soda, that yeah. kind of like aftertaste that like sits on your tongue and it's like you can't quite describe it. That's what I'm, that's like all I'm tasting. So this is not my first sip of my drink tonight. As you can see, I've already drank half of it. Mm-hmm. Halfy waffy. <laughs> Halfy waffy. Got a half laugh. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a specialty tonight because I just went to Ikea Ooh. Um, to get Patrick um, his favorite 
pear cider because it's only sold at Ikea. What a <laughs> random place. Yeah. And it's pear cider and it's mixed with some, oh, my, my usual, uh, I'm still trying to finish the bottle of lemon absolute vodka. Oh so, my God. <laughs> so pear cider and lemon. <laughs> and it's not too bad. It's a little like, it tastes summery, like a summer drink. Mm-hmm. Refreshing. Okay, what do I see in your hand, Megan? Well, you are so into shots, so I have a little shot prepared. Oh my God, I don't have one. Should I prepare? You should prepare. It's my um, my shot glass that I got in Salem, Massachusetts. This never gets easier and I never like doing it, but <laughs> it makes the episode more fun. Oh yeah, it does. As a, as a, <laughs> as a little zest. Yeah, little zesty westy <laughs> louise oh, okay relax okay <laughs> all righty are we gonna cheers cheers that is tart Ooh. Ooh, oh it just burped excuse me <laughs> listeners <laughs> oh my god Let's get right into the podcast. What we are doing this week is we mentioned how much we love the idea of summer camp. So we wanted to mix that with our Crime on Tap theme. Mm. We wanted to ruin summer camp for everyone. (laughs) Right. Since we never had that experience we were hoping for, we are discussing famous summer camp murders. (gasps) Oh my God. (laughs) And I feel like this is a genre that I feel like, yeah, we have Friday the 13th, but they're all like movies or like Dead of Summer. That was, I think it was still ABC Family when it, when it aired. Before uh, Freeform. Yeah. Before it became Freeform. That's how old we are. Yeah, and also, oh, American Horror Story, they recreated a famous summer camp story on one of their seasons, Camp Redwood. Oh, yeah, and it was based off of an actual yeah, event. Yeah, which we're not going to be talking about that one today, but... Because mm-hmm. that one's been played. We have some new ones mm-hmm. that we want to share with everybody. Yeah. So mine is like very multi-layered, my first one. Mm-hmm. Um, so this took place in Belgium. So we have quite a few foreign stories. Yeah. Uh, by quite a few, I mean I have one. <laughs> I have one. Uh, so fifty percent of our stories are foreign. <laughs> <laughs> well, but we're we're just catering to our international listeners. Yes, of course. All all mm. one of you. <laughs> so this is the Antwerp summer camp attack. Mm-hmm. So this was a terrorist attack um, that was anti-Semitic. So it was against um, Jewish people. And mm-hmm. this happened in 1980. Um, there was a bunch of attacks from like the 70s to the 90s that this terrorist group. Let's see if I can pronounce it. This goes like really deep. This is crazy. al Nassar, this group that was um, anti-Semitic that did a horrible bunch of crimes against uh, Jewish people from the 70s to the 90s yeah. and this is one of their attacks it resulted in the death of one boy 20 people were injured eight were taken to the hospital um, among them was a pregnant woman so what happened was there's about 40 people with their sons is all boys Jewish camp so they're waiting at the bus stop to drop them off mm-hmm. at the bus then go to camp and they threw grenades 
and shot them. And thank goodness only one person passed away because it was 15-year-old David Kuan who passed away. Luckily, most didn't, but they did sustain some critical injuries. One 13-year-old boy suffered critical brain injuries and his um, suffering from that. This is in the 80s, yeah. so I don't I don't know the follow-up on him, but mm-hmm. it was, you know, very, you know, lifelong lasting. So the man who perpetrated it was a um, Syrian gentleman named Said. He fled the scene once he, you know, unloaded everything, and witnesses mm-hmm. chased his ass down. They literally caught him, and he was put in jail. So he did answer for his crimes. They actually didn't get to camp. So this was like at the camp bus stop, but it still counts. That's what okay? I was going to say. Like this didn't even happen at camp. Like they're on their way to camp. They're all excited, you know? So this yeah. is where shit kind of gets crazy. Okay. So, um, <laughs> so this extends beyond the camp issue. So there's this thing that happened called the Silco incident. Belgian French family, the Houtekins Kets. So it was like a huge family gathering and they're rich. So they're on Mediterranean Sea with their yacht. I just messed up. Okay. So the group's name was not Al-Nazar. That's the guy that did it. Said Al-Nazar. The group's name is Abu Nadel. It was also perpetrated by the group that they kidnapped all of these, this whole family because they were a Jewish family. What happens in 1991 is Al-Nazar is traded. Like on a baseball team? Yeah, his release is traded for the release of the Belgian-French family. So they were held oh captive God. from 1985 to 1991. So the French half of the family That's was actually crazy. released. They were actually released earlier because the French government made a deal. And a lot of countries don't want to make deals with terrorists, but the French the French did. So the Belgian part of the family was stuck there. And so they traded the family for the release of Al-Nazar. And yep. so... I just need to share that because it, when I was researching this and found that out, I was like, this is so twisted. Like there's so many layers to this. There's so many twists and turns. Yeah. I was thinking it's kind of similar. Cause sometimes if we have like people who are captured in like North Korea or something or in like Iran, don't we like, we have like a prison with like terrorists in it. And sometimes it's like a give and take like, Oh, you captured our, like our reporter over in Iran, we'll release a terrorist if you give us back the, the reporter. Is that right. like the same thing? And that, Yeah, that's exactly what happened. This was a prominent, I mean, they had a freaking yacht, the private yacht. They were yeah. a prominent family. That was the deal for, for them. So and it's also interesting to think about how it's like putting a value on your life. Yeah, right. Like, I'll trade you this guy that did this horrible thing for these. Like, it's just, it's so crazy. But I just thought it was so interesting that this summer camp thing was the whole part of this wide terrorist group that involved a bunch of governments. Like, I feel like that's in the vein of our conspiracy theory. So I was like, (laughs) it runs so deep. Like this is perfect for our podcast. (laughs) Rookie of the year. (laughs) Oh, because he was traded. Because he was traded. (laughs) You're the worst. Alrighty. So my names are a little bit easier to pronounce because we're going to old Oklahoma. All right. So mine was just three years before the rookie of the year in Belgium was awarded um, in 1977. And this is an iconic case. So if you look up uh, camp murders, you're going to find this one probably on the top. So this is one that's like, like this is actually at summer camp. Like it was at Camp Scott in Mays County, Oklahoma, where we find three girls named Lori Farmer, Michelle Goose, 
Guise, G-U-S-E. Goose? Gus? Gus, yeah. Just Gus with an E. And you said they were going to be easy to pronounce. <laughs> I thought they were. I saw Farmer and I was like, this is easy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Michelle, Gus, whatever. And Doris Milner. We have three young girls, ages eight, nine, and ten. We set the scene two months before the murders actually occur. Um, so two months prior to camp actually starting, the counselors had a training. So they go up and they do all their training before the campers come. Unlike um, Cutco, they have training. Unlike Cutco, they have training. Yep. Not door to door, tent to tent. Tent to tent. <laughs> Um, and one of the camp counselors discovered that her belongings had recently been ransacked in one of the tents. And <laughs> oddly enough, that her donuts were stolen and only the box was left. <laughs> Sounds like a bear. Right? Like when you're so, camping with food? Like, that's a bear. Yeah. I mean, you think, like, you go in, like, oh, like, something just got in here and, like, moved my clothes around, you know, ate my donuts. But no, she opened the box the empty donut box. That's why it's the donut. The donuts are important. <laughs> oh, um, and there was a there was a handwritten note, and on it were the words that said, "We are on a mission to kill three girls in tent one." Everybody at camp, you know, they're all alerted about you know this note, and the director of the camp treated the note as a prank. So basically, just like <laughs> it's a prank, not going to worry about it. Nothing's going to happen. Nobody's going to murder like- anybody. I feel like nowadays they would camp, they would shut the camp down. They would have like a bomb sweep, a biohazard team right. come in. Like that shit is just taken so much more seriously now. And that's what I was thinking. I was like, mm, maybe just be like on extra high alert. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But two months later, uh, camp starts and we find the three girls. Uh, they're in their tent together. And on the day of June 12th, 1977, Lori, Michelle, and Doris all huddled in their tent because there was a bad thunderstorm. And during the thunderstorm, they were sharing tent number eight. So it wasn't tent number one. Okay, that was Mm going to be my question. (laughs) Yeah. So they were in tent number eight, and tent number eight was actually located the furthest from the counselor's tent. They were the furthest away, and (laughs) the counselor is going to hear their screams, apparently. I don't know if that's what they're trying to make it this out to be Mm -hmm. you know like they're the farthest away i don't know and then on the morning of june 13th counselors awoke and on their way to use the shower at 6 a.m in the morning they discovered the bodies in their sleeping bags in the forest just on the path to the showers um all of the girls and all the three girls in tent eight had died their bodies had been left on the trail leading to the showers and they had been raped bludgeoned and strangled there was evidence Mm -hmm. found of a large red flashlight so I'm thinking like one of those ones like you hold by like the handle and you like, you know, like you walk around with it. Oh yeah. You could use that as a weapon. Yeah. So there was a red flashlight that was found on the bodies and there was a fingerprint on the lens that was um, eventually never identified. Of course. Um, there was a nine and a half men's footprint left in the, in the mud and there was also blood in the tent. We know that it was a man mm-hmm. that, who did it because they got the footprint. You know, a nine and a half men's shoe is different than a nine and a half woman's. So, right. Easy to identify that it was a man that did it. The camp was later evacuated and shut down, never to reopen again. There was never anybody convicted of the murders. They never found anybody. There was one suspect, and his name was Gene Leroy. 
And he recently, if you guys haven't listened to our recent episode on the Danamora prison escape, oh, um, yes. Gene Leroy actually escaped from Maya's County Jail in Oklahoma. Um, he was convicted of kidnapping and raping two pregnant women in burglary. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you all so, have a hard time with that I, word. I know. I hate that word. And he was actually raised about a mile away from where the camp was. He was a prime suspect in the case. Everybody thought that he did it. But unfortunately, there wasn't just enough evidence to convict him. And a local jury had acquitted him of the murders. But nonetheless, he had he had already 305 years left to serve. So it didn't really matter. And he eventually died of a heart attack, which I love this. Like, this has nothing to do with the fucking case. But it says that he died of a heart attack after working out for one hour in the prison yard. Oh, my God. Me. (laughs) (laughs) Jinx. I was like, oh, my God. He worked out for one hour and fucking died. (laughs) See? And that's why I don't work out, okay? I'm keeping my body safe. Well, how old was he? Was he 90? I think he was, like, in his late 60s or 70s, so... Well, you never know. Sometimes your heart just gives out. I don't know. (laughs) But yeah, that's ultimately the case. These girls were raped and killed. To this day, there's no suspect or no conviction for the death of these three girls. I wonder if it was like nowadays, if that fingerprint on the flashlight would have solved it because did they have dna back then or it probably wasn't very good if they did they probably did but they probably i don't think they had like the database you know right so i was thinking if he was already in jail they would already have his fingerprints they would be able to run that and yeah right exactly also the camp director i would feel like it'd be so hard to live with that guilt like think if they took the donut box thing seriously those girls would have been live that's right which is it makes me think too it's like what was the intention here like why would you give yourself away two months earlier at a counselor training like one how do you know there's a counselor training like Mm -hmm. are you at the camp are you a counselor what's going on here how do you know this is going on why are you writing notes then i'm thinking it's probably a local person that knows about the camp which could be that guy because he lived a mile away from the camp just imagine like a random camp like let's say we go to alexis camp we randomly just show up one day and we ransack a tent like we don't know like where all the campers are we don't know their itinerary you know like we could get caught so easily if we're just a random person yeah you know what i'm saying well and then what i was gonna say is i'm also thinking what if it really was a prank and it was just like a coincidence like that i feel like that could have been conspiracy too conspiracy (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but then I also think I'm like, it had to have been planned because I'm thinking like, who takes the donuts and leaves the box? Like, do they eat them while they're in the tent or did they stuff them in their pocket? Yeah, okay. How many donuts were there? Was it just a few donuts left over or was right. it the whole kit and caboodle? I'm sure I could take another five hours and find out the answer for you, but I didn't think that was that important. <laughs> I'm sorry, you did not do thorough enough research. I need to know more about the donuts. <laughs> Yeah, so that's the Oklahoma murders of Lori, Michelle, and Doris back in 1977. So speaking of not that recent, mine is in 2005. Oh, wow. Clock me. Um, So this one's a little bit interesting. This is a day camp. It's kind of depends on who you ask if it's accidental or not. So there's a conspiracy with it, of course. Um, So... 
this is the death of Yanni Gottsman, who was four years old at the time. He drowned mm-hmm. at um, the summer camp run by Cathedral Oaks Athletic Club in California. So it was like a day camp and they had like the resort pool. So that day, you know, I don't know how many of our listeners have gone to camp, but whenever you go to camp and there's like a lake or a river or a pool, you always, no matter how old you are, you always have to do a swimming test to see if you're able to yeah. go into the deep end. So mm, yeah. So would I be able to, Megan? Uh, no, Sean doesn't know how to <laughs> swim. <laughs> wow, expose me on national podcasts. International, actually. <laughs> Oh, yes. I'm Miss Falcon International. <laughs> well, I, I thought that's what you were alluding to, so I just went ahead and said it. <laughs> Jenny Darling was the one that did the test mm-hmm. for our young, young, oh my God, young <laughs> Yanni. I don't know why I decided I wanted to say it that way. Um, and he did not pass. He was very confident, but he did not pass. Um, Because I'm like, Mm -hmm. he's freaking four. Jenny restricted him to only being in the shallow end. So there's a bunch of lifeguards. There's counselors around and kids of all ages. So one of the counselors, Sam Shipley, who I want to add is the ginger. Okay. I feel like that's important. I love his name. Sam Sam Shipley? Yes. Oh, well, you're not going to love what he's about to do. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Hee hee. So Sam Shipley, and this is all caught on tape. So this is all, this is not like hearsay. This is like evidence. Oh my Um, God, I have to watch it. Oh my God, it's disturbing. Just a side note, there's a whole website that his parents made for all the information, all the people involved, everything that's happened to get justice for him. Wow. So I got all of this information right from the source. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's... What is it? I think it's just yannigotsman.com. Yep, it's yannigotsman.com. Mm-hmm. Um, so feel free to check it out. It's very thorough. His parents clearly loved him a lot and want justice for him. So Sam Shipley was like egging him on with like some of the older boys like, hey, Yanni, come over here into the deep end. Ha ha, you can't. Ha ha. Just kidding. Come on. I'll help you, bud. And so on tape, <laughs> Sam Shipley is shown dunking him upwards of 12 times, like over and over again. You Like, do people know what dunking is? Like, you put their head underwater and you hold it underwater and then you let them come back up. And you're like, haha, I almost murdered you. Like, I hated that. <laughs> it was not funny to me. That's I like just, what I didn't mean go in the water, so like, Yeah, I just never went in the water, so I didn't really experience that. Oh, yeah, sorry. So I didn't have the shared experience. Do you at least know what dunking is, though? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So imagine this little four-year-old boy dunked 12 times. So of course, after being dunked 12 times, Yanni is struggling to get back up. He's tired. He's like struggling to get his bearings back. He's four years old. He's not, it's been shown that he's not a good swimmer. And he's struggling for eight full minutes while Sam Shipley has his back turned playing with the other kids. The lifeguards, they're on their phone. They're chatting. One went to go get a soda And Mm -hmm. this child is drowning for eight long minutes before he finally passes away. And he's just floating in the pool. And then someone turns like, oh, there's (laughs) a little dead boy in the pool. (laughs) So, of course, the parents are like, this is negligence. Like, how could you do this? Mm -hmm. Like, how how did so many people, because I think there was like four 
lifeguards, like five counselors. There's so many adults. Like, how did you not notice this boy for eight minutes? Like, if it was like a yeah. short, quick thing, no shit happens. Eight minutes of him struggling. Yeah. All on tape. Like, there's no dispute. So the parents obviously sue and they're like, how could you do this? And they also find out that they were operating without a license. So they didn't have a license to operate a day camp. Oh, my God. But the conspiracy goes deeper. Okay, but wait. You were like, oh, this is like a high-end, like, exclusive camp. They didn't have a license? Well, that's where I'm like, it was all... It was all talk, and really, they're just oh my god making wanting to make a buck, like this high end plate, and yeah. that's why they trusted their full year, you know, very young son. Because I feel like that's pretty young to go to even a day camp, in my opinion. Four, yeah, that's, that's really, really young. young, and so that's why they said that they trusted that he would have a good time and be okay because this was like such a pillar of the community. It was high end you know, trusted, expensive, exclusive, all that rich people stuff. The crazy conspiracy part, and this is why his parents are amazing, because they have everything organized. They dug deep. They know everything. They know everything about this club inside and out. (laughs) Oh, okay. So the Gottsman um, hired a private investigator because the club was just not budging. They weren't willing to give out the tapes. They were hemming and hawing. They weren't accepting any responsibility. Um, Mm -hmm. And so the private investigator, who's not named, of course, discovered that Richard Birdie, who is the owner of the club, made a substantial contribution to the sheriff's office. You know, the the old, oh, um, I feel like this happens all the time in shows when they're bribing cops. They're like, oh, I'll, you know, get you raffle tickets in your fundraiser. Um, So that's what he did. He bought 15,000. He donated $15,000 and then bought $3,000 worth of raffle tickets won a secret lottery and then donated all of the money that he won in the the lottery supposedly the supposed mysterious lottery so i'm assuming wow. embezzlement money laundering or something um to the sheriff's office so it's yeah. like oh this is why you know they're not taking any responsibility and the sheriff's office isn't really doing anything is because Mr. Birdie got them in his pocket. And so even the sheriff's department conducted the investigation horribly. So it was Sergeant Eric Rainey that they had spoken to. Like they have everything documented. And Deputy Green was the person on the scene that responded to the death. And Mm -hmm. they didn't do anything to preserve the integrity of the scene. So they, he was there for like two seconds. He didn't mark anything off. The, Employees were actively cleaning like the pool deck and the pool noodles and everything while the deputy was there. They were cleaning the crime scene while he was there. Oh my God. And they were just like, yep. And he didn't even write a report. Well, if he was getting paid off, like, was he getting paid off at this point? You know, well, he, like- the um, birdie had been doing this for years and years and years. So it was oh, one of those things, okay. oh, something's happening at his club, you know, don't, don't make any waves. All right. You know, we don't want to make him yeah. angry all of this and so just look quick and then walk away yeah so yeah just say that you were there walk away let them do whatever they need to do and so they went to trial on this and some of the employees most of the employees were like yeah we take responsibility but the owner didn't and so i feel like it was definitely like i'll take care of you guys just say you did it get them off their backs so there was no liability for him no fines not even for running operating without a license 
nothing happened to him. And the people that were involved, no one got laid off. No one was fired or got a fine or was even, even had a written warning or anything. No one was punished. One woman who was, she was like the general manager and in charge of hiring. She actually got a bonus at the end of the year. Did she really? So her name was Charlotte Valentine. She was the general manager and responsible for hiring, supervision and training. She got a bonus. Not even, nothing happened to her. She's got a bonus at the end of the year. So that's why it's like with all this shit is so much, so much shady stuff going on. That's why they're like, we want justice. And it's so hard for them to get because Richard Birdie is sleeping with the sheriff, apparently. Like there's so much collusion going on that justice is never going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like this happened in 2005 and still yeah. no justice have, has happened. Little four-year-old boy. That's sad. Yeah. So, so what happened? Did anything happen to the guy that was dunking him? That was on video and everything. No one got no one got in trouble because it it was just an accident. They ruled it an accident. That's so crazy. Mm-hmm. So the sheriffs in this area of California are corrupt. Like stereotype of a crooked cop is like, oh, the yeah. the rich guys are buying their raffle tickets. Like that is so just like it's like almost unbelievable how stereotypical it is. Yeah, and they're supporting their campaign to be the sheriff or whatever. Yeah, like all that stuff. Like, it's like a TV show. Oh, a poor Yanni. Cutest little boy in the world, of course, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I definitely recommend going to the YanniGotsman.com and reading through it. I mean, it's so sad. But, I mean, they have everything compiled. I mean, they're very thorough. And so I hope one day poor little boy gets justice for what happened Mm -hmm. i'm gonna finish it off with the finale which i think is the most gruesome and um the most deaths so um the final camp story we have is the anders bravik murders which i love how i said nothing was recent this was in 2011 the most recent one we talked about (laughs) that's even more recent than mine Um, so this one actually happened in Norway. So we are actually coming up on the anniversary of the 10 year anniversary of the Andre Breivik murders, which is July 22nd, 2011. Um, so I'm oh, yeah. sure. And for our listeners, we're recording on the 20th of July. So this is in two yep. days. Yep. So, I mean, we're right on track, you know, we're up to date with our camp murders. Mm-hmm. Um, so the day of the attack on July 22nd, um, we find that on, oh, his name is Anders. I keep saying Andre. And he sent over 1,000 emails containing his militant ideology. So a little backstory. He's a right-wing terrorist extremist. And he sent out 1,000 emails to all these random email addresses with his manifesto. So you know something was going to be coming up this. Oh, yeah, um, we know manifestos like um, Joel Guy Jr. Exactly, yes. He was in the opposition um, to Islam. And also, I thought it was interesting, he blamed feminism for a European cultural suicide, which I thought was very intriguing. <laughs> so, like, women aren't in the kitchen anymore, so Europe's doomed. Is that what he was thinking? <laughs> yeah. So basically, he was just a womanizer. <laughs> womanizer, you, you womanizer. Hashtag um, for he, he wanted all Muslims to be deported from Europe. And he ultimately, in his deranged mind, he wanted to 
publicize his manifesto in which this was the main reason for his attacks this day. Now, after the attacks, I'll just give a little um, post-medical assessment. He was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, and he was also deemed to have a narcissistic personality disorder. So that gives you a little bit more about Anders and what he's going to be doing pretty soon. Um, <laughs> well, the narcissistic part makes sense because it's like he wants everyone to know. He does everyone like he deserves to have his words out for the public. He knows best. Like blah 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 blah. Right. Blah. And it's like he didn't have to send those emails, but he wanted to, and he you know was feeling the narcissism energy that day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) narcissistic vibes only yeah (laughs) on the day of july 22nd he detonated a fertilizer bomb outside the tower block that was housing the prime minister and as he detonated the bomb he was also caught on camera there's clear security footage of him doing so and he killed eight people by detonating this bomb. Clearly, he was targeting the prime minister at the time. No, he did not stop there. And now we get into the camp portion of everything. So with, within a few hours of the detonation of the bomb on the prime minister, he traveled by boat to a private island called Utoya. Um, now, at this island was the site of camp workers in a youth league 650 young people deep now at this camp they were majority of them were teen members of what was called the labor the labor party were idealists enjoying their annual camping trip on a tranquil wooden island in the utoya so basically they were i don't want to say like hippies but they were just like peace and love and like we love islam like accept everybody So that's basically why he was targeting them, because they were inviting different cultures and diversity into the country, and he he feared that. It sounds like the exact opposite of him, accepting Mm -hmm. of everyone and one with the world and all that stuff. Exactly, (laughs) yes. So, which I thought was wild, like this, this is a camp with 650 people. Could you imagine, like, 650 people? That was like, um, that was, was that more than half of our college population? Mm-hmm. You know, like that's a lot of people on this one island for this one retreat that were a majority like 18 years and younger. So when Anders arrived at the island, mind you, he traveled by boat to get to the island. Um, he posed as a police officer in order to take the boat, which was a ferry to the island. So if you look him up um, and see the evidence through this case um he had a badge and a lanyard and he had a fake police badge on and he posed as a police officer in order to get to the island and he acted as if he was um there to defuse the situation hey there was just a bombing i mean a couple a few hours ago um i'm here to defuse the situation and just reassure you guys you're fine um and we find that a lot of post interviews of people who survived on the island, there were a lot of people who said that um, they felt like they were safe because there was just an explosion on like the mainland. They're on an island surrounded by water, and they're like, "Oh, we have to be safe. Like nothing can happen to us. Like we're on a, we're surrounded by water. Like what could happen over here? You know? Mm-hmm. Like that would be my thinking too. Like I'm at the safest location possible. I'm on an island in the middle of nowhere." 
and there was just a terrorist attack back in my homeland. Like, and I'm just thinking about how much time it took to plan all this, how much calculating, like he was determined. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just like a spur of the moment, like, oh, I just did this bombing. Uh, I want to do something else. Like, no, this was like so planned. Yep. So he was clearly targeting this group because of their beliefs. And he basically, what I read, which I read different stories, but the majority of them, he primarily went onto the island. He huddled the children and the groupings of people together, and he started firing intermittently for more than one hour at the campers. Now, this island is pretty large. You know, there's 650 people at this island. They're all spaced out everywhere. So there's actually photos of children and um, young adults who died on, like, the ledges of the island right by the water. And he was firing for more than an hour, and he eventually killed 69 people, and the youngest being 14. So in total, he killed 77 people this day in Norway. Um, He eventually surrendered as police and everybody got there, um, which is shocking. He's usually at this point, when you kill 77 people, usually you're the 78th, you know? Yeah, or they usually kill themselves. Yeah. But he reminds me of Chris Watts because remember we were talking about how he must be a narcissist because most family annihilators kill themselves and he didn't. Yeah. And this most mass shooters kill themselves and he didn't. So that's Mm -hmm. the link. Well, that's the, that's the thing he want. He wanted to publish his manifesto. He wanted everybody to see it. And what's the best way to, to do it was to create the, like biggest mass murder in Norwegian history. You know, he did what he came to do and he accomplished it. Um, He was eventually, which is interesting because like the Norwegian prison system is so much more different than the U.S. system. Mm -hmm. Um, He was sentenced to what they call containment. And it's a special form of prison sentence that can be extended indefinitely. Um, So it's basically just life in prison. But you get the opportunity to, you know, plead your case as to why it should be lessened. And he was sentenced with an approximate period of 21 years and a minimum time of 10 years, which is the max penalty in Norway. Isn't that That don't sound long enough to me. That don't sound long enough. <laughs> so, yeah. And then I was also reading, because the 10-year anniversary is coming up in a couple of days, mm-hmm. and a lot of people were saying that they were thinking that, I mean, from this, there was going to be a lot of changes um, a lot of changes in not only like gun laws being passed, but also just in the hate that there was towards the Islamic community. Um, but people are saying that nothing has really changed and even things have gotten worse because of the manifesto that's been published. Crazies have come out and are, you know, like aligning themselves with Anders and are even more racist and xenophobic. They're really, they were not anticipating, you know, this to come of this mass killing. Which, kind of like he gave them permission to be yeah. more open. Well, it's almost like when the KKK shows themselves, when they're in the streets, you know, the Proud Boys are out there dancing around. It gives them permission and other people who are hiding and silent to be like, oh, well, they're out there. Then I can express my, you know, terrible opinions as well. I know. It's so interesting. Like, when people feel more comfortable 
acting that way, you really like, oh my God, I had I had no idea that you felt like this. Like you see people that you didn't even think would have these thoughts. You know what I'm saying? If I'm making yeah. sense. I feel like this drink's getting to me. Whew. I even had dinner beforehand too. It was a big dinner. Oh my God. So there's also a quote that was that says somebody that survived at the camp. And though that it was an act of one person, we know that his views are shared by more people today than they were 10 years ago. It's so crazy. And it's so sad that, you know, it's it's impressive that he what he wanted is coming true is to, you know, spread his manifesto. But, you know, at the same time, it's fucked up. And it really isn't a message that should be spread amongst the European nations. Yeah, and we always, and I feel like we always look to those countries like Norway and Denmark and Switzerland and like, oh, you know, they're perfect and utopias and, you know, they have free healthcare. They're doing everything right. Everyone's got their issues, just like people. Every country's got their shit. <laughs> oh my God, it'd be so fun to see if anyone has stories of summer camp that were actually like, the TV shows and the fantasies of summer camp that we have. We'd love to hear if that's actually real or not. I think that'd be super fun. Well, <laughs> let me just end it with a little story that I have at summer camp was like mm-hmm. my like weekend camp at tennis camp. I was a counselor and I know, I think you remember this story, Megan. I um, think I do. Mm-hmm. Yep. The campers locked me out of my cabin and I had to sleep in my car. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's what I thought. That's what. I, so then they could, then they had their, their summer camp dream where they didn't have to worry about you busting their fun up. Exactly. I didn't have to worry about them smoking pot or drinking or having sex, you know, cause I was in the car sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you just accepted your fate. <laughs> <laughs> I know I should have just banged on the fucking walls. Yeah. And you're just like, you know what? You've earned it. You worked hard guys. I was in the right? car. <laughs> But already, guys, we thank you so much for joining us on another episode of Crime on Tap. The vodka shot is hitting me hard. And we're very sorry, but I got to be signing off soon. <laughs> oh, my God. I love it. Guys, it's, it's not even 8.30 p.m. And we're already toasted I... and, like, done for the night. <laughs> be sure to listen to us over on Spotify, Apple, the other ones. And be sure to follow us over on Crime on Tap Pod, over on Instagram. We say this every week, but we are we're eventually going to be getting back on it. Mm-hmm. Maybe once we get like, you know, 20 listeners per episode, we'll be more motivated to like post. <laughs> that is a good idea. I like that. How about we set that? Once we get an average of 20 mm-hmm. listeners, then we'll start busting around. It's just, we're both we really busy. We're very popular. We are. We know we've got so much going on these days. We'll see you guys next time. Where, where crime, crime is always, always on tap. <laughs> <laughs>